Uh, Open your Bibles, if you would, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We've been talking about our status, and I know that a lot of times in our, in our modern vernacular, the word status is kind of a negative connotation. Um, people that are really conscious of their status, we don't necessarily think of that in the best light. But this is simply talking about where we stand, where we stand. Um, and the status that we have in the kingdom, the status we have in the kingdom um, that is, is a product of our salvation, Christ having paid for our sins in his own blood, um, our redemption, him buying us back, paying the price for our sin, calling us his own, and, as we've talked about a lot over the last couple of weeks, our adoption as the children of God and the inheritance that is ours as a product of that. Well, this morning, as Paul walked through the book of Ephesians, Paul will talk about like a whole new facet of that new status that we have, a whole different way of looking at it. And so uh, as we read through the text this morning, uh, just try to spot the remarks that Paul makes about the change in our status. And I do hope, I do hope you're reading along. Uh, it means it, it's so, so much more profitable for you if as we are going through these different letters of the New Testament, you take the time through the week to read ahead. So Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in the 11th verse, and Paul writes, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Father, we thank you for your word, and as we look to it this morning, Father, as we look to your word and the instructions that Paul had uh, for this church uh, a long time ago, uh, a long ways away from us, in, in a culture very different than ours, yet we know that, Father, because it is your word, you speak to our hearts through it. So, Father, help us to see um, through whatever differences there might be in world and culture, Father, and distance and time, Father, to see the truth you have for us as we look to your eternal word, Lord. Give us ears to hear and hearts to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, um, in this portion of Scripture, uh, Paul is pointing out to the Ephesian church actually several changes that have taken place in status, um, all of which are the direct result of God's mercy. Everything we're talking about is by grace. As we saw last week, by grace, he said, you have been saved. Everything that happens here, everything we talk about is a result of Jesus' death, 
burial, resurrection, the outpouring of his spirit on the church. Nothing other than that. Um, as many of you know, I do a radio broadcast on, broadcast on Sunday in Anchorage and out here and um, trying to elicit some feedback just so I know if people are even listening or if it's beneficial. And uh, I came to sharing my email address on the air. And I thought, well, how are people going to remember something as, you know, random as JJNM, right? And I, I believe it was the Lord. He said, well, just tell them it's just Jesus and nothing more. So that's not where it comes from, but that works. Because that's what we're about. We're about just Jesus, nothing more. So maybe that'll help you remember it. Anyway, so these changes that we're talking about are all relative to our status in the kingdom. Our status relative to eternity. And as we see a lot in this particular portion of Scripture, our status relative to one another. That's an important change to be conscious of. Last week we saw how drastic that change was. We talked about that portion in the passage where Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And I hope we got that, that powerful visual. You know, you ever walk through one of those cemeteries that has the great, big, formal, like mausoleum kind of things, and then you go a few rows over and they're not quite as impressive, and then you go a few rows over and it's just the thing in the ground that says, here lies so-and-so. Yeah. Funny how different those monuments are, but the people underneath them are the same. They're all dead, you know, because dead is dead, right? We were dead. And I think it's also important, and I didn't mention this last week, I should point to it, that Paul did not say they were dead because of their trespasses and sins, even though that's true. That's not what he said. His point was they were dead in their trespass. That was their status. That would be our status. In fact, that was our status. And then in verse 4, that, those two marvelous words, but God. We were dead. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. So our status has really changed drastically. We were dead. Now we're alive. And then he goes on to say, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Dead in our trespasses and sins, destined for a graveyard, but instead seated in the heavenly place. How's that for a promotion? Change of address from the, cemetery, from the cemetery to the heavenly places. Well, then this morning, Paul's going to talk about another really significant change in our status. And just like he did before, he contrasts it to our previous state, talking to the Gentiles, because Ephesus was primarily a Gentile church, and of course, that's us, right? Uh, he says, you Gentiles in the flesh called uncircumcision by the circumcision. And then he gives the list of their status our status outside of Christ. He says, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. That pathetic situation was what each and every one of us was, had. That was our status. Separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Describes a dead man. But then he talks about the change. Then he talks about the change. He says, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were dead are alive in Christ, right? Just think about that. Separate from Christ, that's what we were. His death and resurrection of no benefit to us whatsoever. In fact, his death and resurrection 
was a detriment to our status prior to faith. We all know John 3, 16 and 17, right? For God so loved the world, gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world might have life through him. But what comes after that? He who does not believe stands condemned already because he's not believed in the only begotten son. So up until the point that we come to Christ in faith, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord is a detriment to us because it testifies against us. Or rather, we testify against ourselves and our unbelief. So when we were separate from God, we were in a bad place, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. We'll come back to that. Strangers to the covenants of promise. The word of God with all of its magnificent promises was of no benefit to us. And without hope, without God in the world. But now in Christ, he says, you who were far away have been brought near. And verses 14 through 18, Paul talks about the, the connection the change in status between those who were separate and those who were connected, speaking then of, of the tribe of Israel, and brought together. How through the blood of Christ, God unified these two groups, the Gentile believer and the Jewish believer. Now, just to be clear, because often there's confusion on this topic, God did not take the Gentile believer and attach the Gentile believer, that's us, right, did not attach us to the nation of Israel. Often there's confusion on that point. We did not become attached to the nation of Israel because, in fact, what he says in verse 15, that he, might, he did this, that he might make the two into one new man. So God offered a status change both to the Jew and to the Gentile. And in the, bringing the two together created one new man, one new entity to worship him, one new status, right? And then in verse 19, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're now fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. And that's where I really want to focus this morning. I want to focus on that statement that he makes. It's an extraordinary statement. Again, it's a new facet or another facet of our status. He says, you are now fellow citizens with the saints. What in the world does that mean? What does it mean to be a citizen in the kingdom of heaven? Now, we all have an idea, I think, of what citizenship means in our world, and I think we all cherish it, value it, are conscious of it. Of course, a big issue in our culture today is what exactly does that mean? A lot of, lot of very animated discussion about that. But our question is, what is it to be a citizen in the kingdom of heaven? That's our question. Well, to answer that, we really have to go back to verse 12 because Paul uses a word, and he uses it twice, but you don't spot it because of the English translation. Back in verse 12, he referred to the Gentile as being excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Well, what's the commonwealth of Israel? That sounds like you know, one of those phrases maybe you know, some British person might use. Right? Commonwealth It's not a phrase we use very often. Yeah, maybe a Canadian might at some point. But we don't use it very often. Well, that word commonwealth from Israel, it's, the word commonwealth is almost the exact same word as he uses later for citizen. It's the word politeia. Politeia. And I, I do, I sincerely try not to Greek bomb you, you know, give you all these Greek words. But sometimes it just, I think it really helps to, um, to know the word behind the word, especially when we've got it in English so much. 
Because this word politeia, which means commonwealth, um, it's from the word polis, which is a really, really old word, polis. And it, it, we use it in English a lot, right? Every time you, you know, catch one of those Alaska Airlines flights that connects it, Minneapolis. Minneapolis is a weird word. It really is a weird, it's a combination, you know, often you hear me say two Greek words. Well, Minneapolis is a combination of an indigenous word from the Dakota language and a Greek word. Who thought of that, right? Or Indianapolis or Annapolis, a lot of those different cities use that word. How about the word police, right? The police, they keep order in the city. Normally associate police with a specific locality. And that's what that, what that word means. So it's all from this, this Greek word police, which is a really old word. It's well, actually it's one of the oldest. It goes all the way back to the Mycenaeans. And those were the folks that went and beat up on the Trojans. Yeah, the Mycenaeans, right? And in the Mycenaean inscription, we learn that the word police not only spoke of the city, Mycenae, but it spoke specifically of the wall that surrounded the city. That's where the word starts. It starts with this idea of a wall around a city, and that creates a lot of visuals for us. It creates the idea of protection. You know, when the bad guys came, you ran in the city, closed the gates, hid behind the wall, right? Idea of protection. It also spoke of the idea of identity. In antiquity, cities were identified by their wall, right? Jericho being a classic example. Everybody knew about Jericho's wall, right? Um, but it also does something else that we don't necessarily think of, but really begins to speak to us in this passage. The idea of a wall creates a line of demarcation. So you know exactly what is in the city and what's out of the city. And we don't do that in our culture. This is a really good example of how we sometimes have to broaden our perspective on what a word means a little bit. Because we don't do that wall thing, right? And as a result, we're not always conscious of, you know, like where the city stops and where the city starts, who is and who isn't. Now, I tell people I'm from Los Angeles. Key word in that phrase is from, right? I hardly ever went into the city of Los Angeles. We avoided it like the plague, right? Well, I live like two cities over, but when I say we live, that's because you know, anybody that's flown into L.A. knows you fly into that mess, you can't tell from the air where the city stops and where it starts. There's no line of demarcation, right? You can be four or five cities away, and you still think you're in L.A., right? So we don't do that real clear line of demarcation like they used to in antiquity. The wall caused that, right? So this whole idea of a city and its protection and its identity and its line of demarcation, it was really important, really critical. And that shows up in the New Testament, right? Because there's two times in one chapter in the Bible where Paul's getting himself in really serious trouble, right? Acts 22, and what does he do? He says, wait a minute right now. They're about, first of all, to put him in chains and haul him off. And he says, excuse me, I'm a citizen. I am a Roman citizen citizen, and, and the centurion in, in, in the Roman legion goes, whoops, he backs off real fast, because he couldn't do that. You couldn't put a Roman citizen in chains. And then later, it looks like almost the same day, Paul had kind of run a bad luck, the same day they're about ready to flog him, and they're rigging him up to beat him, and he, he says to the guy that's going to you know, beat him, excuse me, did you know that I'm a Roman citizen? I'm from the city of Tarsus, and that stops it dead in its tracks. And again, the Roman backs off. No, oh, excuse me, get this guy, you know, down, get him unchained, free him. We can't do this because he's a citizen. And that citizenship was all Paul had to say was, I'm from Tarsus. That's all it took. So his identification with that city 
was incredibly important. Now, when the word was first used, and this is where I think it really starts to speak to us, it, it referred to the bricks and the mortar. You know, there's that city over there, and there's a wall, and there's buildings, and there's stuff. But as the word is used more and more over time, it was used less to describe the structures and more to describe the people. And the understanding that what was inside of it was more important than the city itself. Now, they never lost the idea of geography simply because the city was always seen as something. It was never just an idea. It was always something. And that something, that identity, bound up in the people. And that took them from polis, that older word, to politia, the idea of citizenship. You know, if the city is something, then the body of people who make up the city are even more important. They're unique. And, and in the development of the language, and I just offered this by way of illustration, that really came to a forefront in about 490 B.C. when, when the Persians are headed to Athens and they're, they're going to burn it. And, and the people of Athens uh, said to themselves, you know, we can stay here and fight and die, or we can just leave. And the, the Persians will come and they'll burn our city. And then when they leave, we'll come back and rebuild it. Because they said, we are Athens, not the buildings. And a wholesale change in the language took place. And that's the kind of change that, that Paul is speaking of in this when he emphasizes that we as the citizenry of the kingdom make up the kingdom. If you look for the kingdom and building and structure, you won't find it. It's in us. It's in us, right? Citizenship, as we think about it, is us. And as we know in our present context, there are both rights and responsibilities, understand that in our, in our natural citizenship, don't we? There are both rights and there's responsibilities, there's benefits and there's things we have to do. Uh, again, that came through loud and, and clear. Uh, when this word is being used, right, it is a political word. That's another word in English that comes from polis, political, the art of the city, politics, right? Um, it, again, this can really be seen uh, in what happens in Athens. And if it sounds kind of strange to you that writers of the New Testament would be referring to what's going on in Athens so frequently, remember that Jesus himself did that. Because when Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church, many of you know that word, that's the word ecclesia, and that's a direct reference to Athenian democracy because of the visual he was trying to create. And that's true in this as well. The whole idea of citizenry with its benefits, its privileges, and its responsibilities. We all know, you know, Athens, well, they used to, had, they say they invented democracy, they didn't, but they were one of the first. When the Athenian democracy was functioning and the city had to make a decision, this is all part of the visual that Jesus was drawing on when he used that word ecclesia. When the city of Athens was making a decision, they would call for all the citizens, right? And again, it was misogynistic. It was only the men. We understand that. Not a perfect example. But they would call all the citizens, and every citizen, here's the privilege. Here's the privilege of citizenship. Every citizen had the right to vote. Every citizen had the right to speak up. Here's the responsibility. Every citizen had to. It didn't matter what you were doing in Athens. When they called the ecclesia together, if you didn't show up, they went and got you. And they would haul you to the place where the ecclesia met. Right? Interestingly enough, and this is just kind of an aside, modern Greece is still, is still the same. You have to vote in the elections in Greece. That's a reflection of this idea, the responsibility of citizenship. 
The only people in Greece that don't vote are the lawyers. Before you get too excited, they run the election, and that is scary. Yeah, um, I hope that didn't record. Um, so this idea of blending of responsibility and privilege in this word, right? Paul says we're no longer strangers and aliens, but we are fellow citizens with the saints. Because of what Christ has done for us, we step into full privilege and full responsibility in the kingdom of heaven. We're going to talk about both of those, right? And then he says this, we're fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. Now, at first, that sounds kind of like he's changed subject, right? He's gone from this political idea, citizenry, to this more familial idea of the household. One and the same. One and the same. Whether from a political standpoint, like you know, citizenship, the police, to a domestic one, the household, there's a common thread. Because it always refers to those people who reside together. So as the people of God, whether we're looking at it using political terminology, if that's what you know registers in your head, or whether it's familial relationship, if that's what registers in your head, either way, he is saying the exact same thing. That by design, both the city and the home are to be an example of where faith operates in community and where it is shared in both right and responsibility. Probably every family here, I can safely say, the members of, this, of the family understand there are privileges, there are rights that are yours as part of the family, and there's also expectations, right? Maybe as simple as taking out the trash, but there's an expectation in the family, right? The parable is really laid out in, in, in the parallel, rather, in the closing verses when he says, you're no longer aliens and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints of God's household. Having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself, the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God. In the spirit. What's Paul saying to us? Paul is saying again, our status has changed drastically from death to life, from aliens to adopted children, from separate strangers to, and foreigners to citizens, to members of the same household. And with this new status comes benefits. Benefits. We're protected. Just like the wall of a city would protect its inhabitants, so we are protected under his roof. You know, one of the strongest implications in a Middle Eastern society, one of the strongest cultural um, rules, if you will, is when someone comes under your roof, they are under your protection. And to fail to protect that person, even if they're your worst enemy, is one of the worst things you can do. The whole story of Lot in the Old Testament is a very vivid description of that. When you come under someone's roof, even to this day, they're under your protection. We're under God's roof. As members of his household, we're under his roof. As citizens in his kingdom, we're under his roof. Therefore, we are under his protection. We've gone from the status of alien to adopted children, members of his household, identified with him. We said that both the city and the home bring identification. Nowhere is that more strongly indicated than in that marvelous parable of the prodigal. You know, there's something said in that parable that maybe we look over a lot. I think probably we, we all know what it. it's in Luke chapter 15. The rebellious child that takes his inheritance goes the other way. When he gets to another country, he spends all of his inheritance. He's broke. 
He's looking for work. He's looking for some way to survive. And it says in chapter 15 that he joined himself to a citizen of another country. That word is not used in Scripture all that often, but it's sure used there. What does it mean? It means everything we say about that word connecting us to the kingdom connected that person to that city. In other words, what Jesus was saying was when the prodigal left home, he didn't just go work for some guy. He didn't just go find an employer that would put some cash in his hands. He actually identified with that other person and that other city, and he wholly betrayed everything he'd been raised with. That simple expression, he attached himself, and the, and the word that he used is like to attach at a gut level. At a gut level, he attached himself to everything foreign to his birth. His betrayal of his father was absolute. But when that wasn't working out so well, he said to himself, you know, even my father's slaves fare better than I do. I'm going to return to my father and I'm going to ask to become one of his servants. And how does the father react? We all know the story. The father, seeing him in the distance, says to his servants, get a robe, get a ring, and get sandals. And we're not going to go into the details because that would take a whole another, a whole another teaching. But the robe, the ring, and the sandals all speak specifically of his inclusion back into the family as a full member. God completely, the Father completely washes away the betrayal and replaces it with the, with the renewed status as a child. Let me just give you one example from those three. You get know what I'm talking about. When the dad says, get a ring and put it on his finger, you know what he's doing? You know what that ring is? It's the family debit card. The father hands the prodigal when he returns the family debit card. Go out and spend my money again because you're my son now. So complete was the father's acceptance. So complete was his return. So there's all kinds of benefit that comes to us when we, when we join the family, when we establish our citizenship in the kingdom, right? The greatest is what he says in verse 18. We both have access in one spirit. That's our privilege. But what of our responsibilities? Have you ever asked yourself, what are the responsibilities I accepted when I became a child of God? When I offered that wonderful gift of adoption that we talked about the last two weeks, what responsibilities became mine? Well, if I had been written, writing rather, if I had been writing the letter to Ephesians, I would have come up with a long list. You got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this. But Paul didn't do that. Thanks be to God. Paul just talked about being built together, God knitting us together into a holy temple. All he really asks of us is to cooperate, to approach him, to approach one another to approach this thing we call the body of Christ with an air and an attitude of cooperation that says, Lord, fit me in as you want. Fit me into your body. Fit me into your home. Fit me into your church as you want. So glad that Paul wrote that, not me. Because I like what Paul wrote. Of course, the, the, the downside to that is there's no limit to it. And that scares us, doesn't it? 
Because if we come to God in all honesty and all sincerity and say, God, you just fit me in where you want, he might ask something I don't want to do. Right? But given what we gain from it, that's a risk I'm willing to take. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. And as, as Paul lays out just another facet, just another part of being called out of darkness into your marvelous light, being called your children, now we're told we're called citizens in, in your kingdom. We come under your roof, Lord, in your household, Father. Uh, we just, if we just kind of sit there and absorb the beauty of that and the power of that, um, it can be overwhelming in a beautiful way, Father. And I pray, Father, that even this week as we're about our stuff, we'll just pause and think about the simple reality of you calling us your own, Lord. In every way, Father, extending to us, Father, all the rights and privileges, Father, of a child, all the rights and privileges of a citizen, your kingdom, Father. And at the same time, Father, we will pause to ask ourselves to ask of you the question as a loving Father, as a wonderful Savior, as the Almighty God we sang, we sang about this morning, what are you asking of us, Father? Pray, Father, that our answer will be a willingness, Lord, an openness and a cooperation to everything you would call us to as we would see your kingdom move forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.